0: Hey there, how you doing? Been watching this pretty amazing compilation of cases. Um, but yeah, on Midas Touch, it says, it's heating up, new hearings in order, Just streamed 13 minutes ago, live shocking new indictments in Trump conspiracy and more, legal AF, let's check it out. looks
1: like
0: the Fed, Fed has, has declared, declared war, war on Americans again. again.
1: Because if In the New York civil fraud case, Trump has already suffered a series of losses in the last week. The gag order to stop the Trump side from bashing the judge's law clerk is reinstated by an appeals court. Trump's team got basic appeal procedure wrong to obtain a fast-track appeal to the highest court and put a fork in it. The defense case is about over with Trump and Eric electing not to testify again for the defense, sensing I am sure that they will be on the losing end of the civil fraud case come testify. January. We break it down.
0: Jack Smith okay, has a trial judge in
1: D.C. election case that he intends to use Trump and his co-conspirators' words and actions against them at trial with special 404B evidence to show common plan God bless intent this man.
0: mistake and to prove Trump's criminal intent.
1: Break it down. What is 404B? You'll know at the end of this podcast. The federal civil defamation jury trial in the District of Columbia against unindicted co conspirator mm. number one, formerly known as Rudy Giuliani, starts in about 10 days. Why is the trial only about damages? And how big a check will the jury write for election workers Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss? Why is this a jury trial at all instead of the judge just deciding? Why is Rudy the only remaining defendant? Why is the judge so annoyed at Rudy and his lawyer? We discuss. Finally, now that Ken Chesbro, disgraced Trump lawyer and Georgia felon, has likely testified to the grand jury in Nevada, we have new indictments of fake electors there, including the former heads of the GOP in Nevada joining Michigan and soon Arizona. We discuss. All this and so much more at the corner of Law, Politics, and Justice on the midweek edition. The Legal AF podcast with Karen Friedman at and me, Michael Popok. Karen, I got a I got a question for you. Yes. Are you thinking of launching a yet another edition of Legal AF?
0: The ladies edition?
1: Well, I've seen that. Is it though? Does that that sounds like the NBA versus the WNBA? We're all peers, but I is it true? You and Dania Perry? Uh
0: we're 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 testing the waters. We're, you know, doing a I'll few here ahead. and there. You know, we're, it's, we'll, we'll see, we'll see. Yeah, the restaurant's you know, a What are you jealous, Pop? Yeah. <laughs> By the way, I love how far we've come in the last few months. Remember when we used to say Ken Cheesebro, and now we say bro? I mean, I, I'm so impressed. No, it's
1: Cheesebro. I'm really all,
0: But of our, our audience,
1: we got home, I can't tell you how many... Criticisms we we get we get great support from the audience. Let me let me leave with that. That's the better end. We get tremendous, tremendous, beautiful support. You know, we share with each other when we catch something in a chat or an email or a text. One of us gets that is complimentary because it helps balance off some of the other trolling that happens. But occasionally we criticize for grammar, or we pronounce states' names wrong, or names of people wrong, and. All I can say is, I don't know, It's uh, we're trying. It's We're like a garage band. We're doing the best we can on the limited budget we've been provided to bring you <laughs> that analysis in real time as quickly as we can, and sometimes we make mistakes, but we're human. I guess what people like about the show. Speaking of humans, <laughs> that's a great segue. Uh, Speaking of humans, <laughs> let's talk about the New York
0: civil fraud case.
1: And uh, let me frame it and then punt it over to my illustrious partner uh, in this uh, all things uh, law. I was a crime, partner in crime. Partner in law, in order would be better. Uh, Karen Freeman, Ignifolo. So Donald Trump didn't like that he got gagged and his lawyers got gagged because he likes to bash in a misogynist way, he doesn't care that the, he puts somebody's life in jeopardy, the principal law clerk that works for the judge. There's no other way to put it. He must get up in the morning and brush his teeth and think, how can I attack this poor civil servant on a daily basis, accuser of crimes? He's and being saying he
0: brushes his teeth. Um,
1: because I'm losing in the courtroom. And when he got gagged, like enough, put a sock in it, you know, show some decorum, you know, you know, show some respect for the dignity of the process uh, and, uh, and, and all of that. You know, he he was um, happy for about a minute. When they were successful in getting a um, administrative, uh, like a duty judge, a duty judge that's assigned uh, to take in on appeal any kind of emergency relief, and they got they they pulled Justice Friedman again, and Justice Friedman has been wrong twice related to Donald Trump and said, yeah, I'm going to stay the gag order until the full merits panel of the first department of division can rule on it. I'm not sure I see anything wrong with attacking the law clerk. And we were like, what? And so that just led Letitia James to send in pages and pages and pages of declarations and affidavits and exhibits showing how the the threat assessment has gone up so terribly against uh, Judge Ngoron and against the principal law clerk um, that the Department of Public Safety has had to intervene and protect them. And uh, then a, a four-judge panel, full merits panel, four justices of the Appellate Division, first department, reversed what the, uh, Judge Friedman had done and reinstated the gag order both on Donald Trump and his lawyers, while in the background we still wait for the DC Court of Appeals in the criminal case there to decide whether Judge Chutkin's gag order is, uh, should be upheld. Uh, and so all these things are going on at the same time. So that was the result. And then why don't you take it from there? Um, there's been reporting about how clueless Chris Kice and Cliff Robert are. And I mentioned this in a hot take that I did about just basic appellate procedure and how it works that at the First Department as they showed up breathlessly at the clerk's office trying to get their papal- papers filed, which were bounced, uh, to get to the higher court, the Court of Appeals in New York, on the issue. And in the meantime, going back to the trial judge, Judge Angoron, um because the case, I- I've spent uh, seven minutes, six and a half minutes, talking about everything except for the merits of the case, which is sort of what Donald Trump wants. Uh, I've just been talking about the law clerk and gag orders, and I have, and it's taken away valuable time to talk about what's going on in the courtroom in a civil fraud case where a judge holds Donald Trump's business future and past and dollars in his hand. So, why don't you take it from there, Karen, and fill everybody in about what you observed, and where do you think this goes from here as we move into a closing argument in January?
0: Well, we're deep into the defense case, right? The, the um... The prosecutor rested. They've had over, I think, forty-five trial days at this point, and we're in the, I think, fourth week of the defense case. And they have been putting on witnesses, a lot of experts and bankers and, and various individuals. And mm-hmm. it was widely expected that Eric Trump was going to come back, as well as Donald Trump, were going to come back and testify on their case in chief. Their their defense a uh, defense case. And, you know, for, for people who aren't familiar with civil law and how it works, and I'm okay. new to it, so I find it fascinating how different it is from criminal law, you know, you might say, well, I don't understand. Didn't Eric and Donald already testify? Why would they be coming back? And the way it works in civil cases and not in criminal cases, this is completely different and opposite, is you can't call the opposing counsel in a criminal case, or the opposing party, I should say, in a criminal case on your direct case, because they'll take the fifth, they have a fifth amendment right against uh, incriminating themselves. And so it, it's not done ever. And they would testify if they want to put on a defense, and then they would waive, you know, but that's their own choice. So so they'd be waiving their Fifth Amendment privilege. And then the prosecutor cross examines them. Well. In civil cases, it's fascinating because they have depositions already. So they've already questioned them. They know what they're going to say. Again, in New York, you don't have criminal depositions and you, and so you can make a decision whether or not you want to put them on the stand and and you would essentially cross examine them because by law, they are hostile because they are a party opponent. And so, so. I found it fascinating that they were cross-examined, but then their lawyers didn't uh, didn't talk to them or speak to them or ask them questions. And I asked you about that and you educated me that, uh, and I appreciate it very much that the reason that's done is because they wait until, and they tell their side of the story and what they want to say on their case, because when there's a, a motion to dismiss at the end of the government's case, you don't want to have added to that by providing evidence, right, you wait until your case. And so so that's where we are. And so everybody's expected that they would come back and. And give their side of the story and, and testify the way Don Jr. did when he gave his um, Trump Organization television commercial and touted all the various properties and you know talked about how great they are and, and fond over his father who he called a, a genius, uh, and, and his, his ability to work with, you know, work with real estate and transform it was like watching an artist work. I mean, it was just one of these like gag me moments, you know, that uh, happen sometimes in trials and, and, but apparently, um. What happened was they they asked they asked Judge Ngoron to delay their testimony until after the appellate courts rule on this gag order that you were just talking about, the gag order that they are appealing. And Judge Ngoran turned to the government and said, I think, And they said, No way, and Judge N'Goran said, No way. And so <laughs> Eric so far has chickened out and decided not to testify. Um, and I, mm-hmm. I, all the reading I've done is that Trump is still scheduled to testify on December 11th, although I know you did a hot take saying you don't expect him to testify, oh, uh, no. given this information. Do you have other information that, that, that I haven't been able to find?
1: Yeah, I think the the reporting that I'm seeing is that Trump's not testifying again. But uh, Donald, I mean, um, especially now that they've ruled that he can't appear. I don't I I still, for the life of me, don't understand why the gag order preventing him from bashing, that's all, that's all, the, I want to be clear here. Gag order in the District of Columbia is broader. That has to do with targeting witnesses, co-defendant, was well, no co-defendants in D.C., witnesses and members of the criminal justice team, prosecutors, their staff, investigators and the like, and targeting them in social media and in other statements by Donald Trump or his proxies ones that he's, he controls. This one's even narrower. This isn't a civil case. Don't bash, ox, attack, talk about the functions of, or the behavior, the conduct of my law clerk. And to be clear, I am not here suggesting that if Donald Trump or his team had a legitimate pellet, appeal, reversible error type issue, that they shouldn't have the right to preserve the record and make a record for the appeal that we'll have a little legal af breakout session on appellate practice at the trial level where the record is made that's the record meaning judges rulings the evidence the testimony the transcript of the hearings and the trials and all of that comprised and the, and the filings pleadings and other other discovery and other in, other things that are on the docket of the case so to speak are, comprise the record that becomes the record on appeal that gets transmitted to whatever appellate court is the next stop on the train. It literally gets transmitted, the entire package. It gets numbered one through whatever the last page, when you stack it up in one big pile. So joint appeal appendix or or appendix, you know, one to 5,000, that's how it's referred to in briefing, and you send it to the appeals court. If you have an issue that you wanna preserve for appeal, you mention it at trial to give the trial judge the first opportunity to make the decision Because that's what you're supposed to do to preserve it. And if the judge rejects your position, you can go further and make a proffer about what the evidence that's been or the issue that you're being precluded from talking about would have shown. And you can make a proffer, not for the judge who's probably already made up their mind, but for the appellate court. And you can point to that. I made a a record. They made a record. It's now become what I call in a hot take a broken record about a principal law clerk. We got it. You think she's Chuck Schumer's girlfriend. You think that she's, because she's a Democrat, she can't be fair. You think because in response to ridiculous arguments being raised by Alina Haba, the lawyers, or Donald Trump, and she rolls her eyes or huffs or puffs, that that indicates reversible error. Um, that she's doing her job as the principal law clerk, um, handing notes and assisting the judge at the trier of fact in a, 10-week, 12-week, 14-week trial where he has to keep everything straight in his head and in the record. Great. You made the record. That doesn't mean, first of all, not only does it mean that you have to keep raising the issue every time. Oh, another note, another eye roll, another comment, another, another social media post by the law clerk. You made the record. And to do it after the record has been made, which was, it was made a long time ago, five, six weeks ago, Then it just becomes abusive, unethical conduct by people that are supposed to be officers of the court in a courtroom. And that's where we are now. We've crossed past, well past the line of making a proper record, if that was their intention, into the world of abusive, harassing conduct that has no place in the court system of New York. And that's what the appellate court has been saying by reinstating the gag order. I don't know what that has to do with Donald Trump or Eric Trump or anybody's decision to testify or not. They're just looking for an excuse not to testify. Because obviously, now we're in minute 15 of our podcast, talking about what's going on inside. It's not going well. Mm -hmm. Experts for Donald Trump that have no basis in fact in the record of the case or in relevancy tied to issues about materiality, intentional fraud. and. And um, the amount of the ultimate recovery by the people if they prevail. They have nothing to do with it. M- most of those people were destroyed by their own reports uh, in cross-examination. So take the Trump experts off the board. The, the, the bankers didn't help him either. He promised Trump, you'll see my bankers. Deutsche Bank loves me. They love me. They love giving me money as much as I want, regardless of how much I have in the bank wrong. You have a disconnect and a mismatch between front of the house and the back of the house in a bank. The front of the house is the banker. They're salespeople. They're just selling all day long. They go on golf trips and junkets. They take their clients to Scotland to go play links courses, get up and they you know shower them with gifts and presents because they just want the business. I want the biz. Back of the house has compliance and underwriting requirements and review of assets and due diligence requirements in order to run a bank. And the and the underwriters are the ones, not the bankers, are the ones that set the amount that they want as security and pledge collateral for a loan. We want $2.5 billion in um, net worth, real net worth, not cookbook net worth. We want $500 million in liquid assets. That's what you have to have. It's binary. You either have that number or you don't. Except in Trump world, when you don't have that number, when your real balance sheet is closer to one billion, which we'd all love. I wouldn't want that, suck that out of my bank account. But but that's the one billion. It's not two and a half. So that would limit the amount of money that he'd be able to get from a Deutsche Bank. So I, we're not here to suggest that Deutsche Bank's bankers didn't love him. I'm sure they did. He was a whale. If you're, if you're a billion or more, you're a whale. The question is, are you Moby Dick? You're your two and a half times that in order to get the money that they were given. And that is the issue they keep missing. It's like they're putting on two different cases, which is. You which is uh, let me just finish that point. Then I'll turn it over to you, which is which is terrible for Donald Trump, because the case that matters is the civil fraud case and the amount of the remedy dollar amount that's going to be awarded by this judge. Sorry, Karen. Go ahead.
0: No, no. I was just going to say um, but what I thought was interesting or weird was the, the bankers who testified, the Deutsche Bank bankers said, look, you know, financial statements are estimates, you know, so as a result, we do our own due diligence. And in fact, here, we adjusted the numbers downward. He, we adjusted it from 4.9 billion to 2.6 billion. Doesn't that prove the fraud? Didn't he just <laughs> say, uh, you know, because it's not it's it's about the fact that, you know, that they submitted false Fraudulent documents. I was like, that to me is the proof right there.
1: Right, the, the the delta between we gave Donald Trump a haircut off the number he gave us, but the problem is the number was so high that the haircut wasn't deep enough to match the act. Right, isn't that your point, Karen? To match the actual one point exactly. five billion dollar net worth, he didn't have two point seven. He didn't have four point five. He had one point something. If you were honest about the value of Mar-a-Lago. Trump Tower, 40 Wall Street, and all the other pieces of property that make up his balance sheet. That's what the case, some people who tuning in late might be thinking, is that what this case is about? This is exactly what this case is about. The statements of financial condition reflecting the assets that Donald Trump can claim ownership of, and what if the numbers were true or false? It's easy. Now, if you go pull the balance sheet for Microsoft, Apple, or name your favorite company in America, it's relatively easy. There are, there's cash on hand. There's assets that are valued under generally accepted accounting principles, which, is, which, which have due diligence as part of it because there's auditors that are involved, not auditors that leave the scene screaming, we can't trust the numbers of our client, but real auditors. And therefore, the public in making investment decisions can rely on them. And that's why we don't have cases where a major company in America is cooking the books we do in a mom and pop shop basically a family business which is all this is a family office which all, which, which is all this is that's a thing that's a new york thing right karen family offices
0: yes exactly so it's many a new people york work thing. Interesting. Yeah. There's a lot Uh, of people who work for family offices. All that means that's code for we're rich. We have a lot of money and we have an office and we invest our money and take care of our properties and our various holdings. And that's the family office.
1: And and, and right. And the family office. This is just a glorified family office way that the way that that's run and they didn't have the controls in place this is
0: my family office by the way <laughs>
1: <laughs> this is my office <laughs> this this um, they didn't have the the family office in the trump world doesn't have the controls in place to be a legitimate business and that's why persistent fraud is often found in places like that and not in places like publicly traded companies because publicly traded publicly traded companies don't have all their executives with their last name same last name, and they actually take their position seriously, um, and they are control officers, and they know what that means, and they're skilled, qualified, and trained to, to run that, to run those operations, those different operational parts of that. That's not here. That's not what Donald Trump wanted. Donald Trump wants to wake up in the morning and go, I'm a five-billionaire. Let's go borrow money today. Get my guys on the phone. I mean, that that's fine until you get a New York attorney general, and combined with The most uh, robust series of laws in this, I would argue, in all 50 states go after persistent fraud exists in New York uh, since 1956, which is the 63-12 executive law that we're under right now. So let's say Trump comes back. All right. So is there any do you have any what's your what's your view about um, what are the what are the odds? Let's do odds making here. What are the odds in your mind that Donald Trump prevails on any of the remaining six counts and or is able to limit the amount of money that is taken away from him and companies dissolved when the trial is all over, through Judge Engoron. Uh,
0: so I think after the government puts on a rebuttal case, if any, and Judge Ngoron has his hears the closing arguments in mid-January and then gives his decision that will likely be written, Uh, I believe he is going to throw, I I think he's going to acquit, if that's the right word, um, on at least one charge. I really do think, especially now that you've got all these bankers saying that it didn't make a difference, we didn't rely on them, we did our own due diligence. And the reason I think Judge Encoran is going to do that is because Trump's entire appeal is going to be based on the fact that Judge Ongoran was biased, that he's partisan, a best law clerk, that he wasn't listening, he didn't have an open mind, that he was 100% had his mind made up, that he didn't listen to the evidence. And the perfect way to inoculate that and immunize that argument is to show that he did listen to the evidence and he didn't just give the government everything that they wanted. And so if he doesn't give them the remaining six charges, I don't think that makes a difference one way or another. They've already found the big charge, right? The big the big one. And the damages, I think, are going to be significant in addition to monetary damages. It's going to be a huge, huge, huge penalty. But I also think he's not going to be able to uh, do business in the state of New York anymore. He's going to have to sell off many of his uh, or dissolve many of the LLCs or other other um, other companies that he set up that that hold many of the licenses and the businesses uh, that he has here in New York. That That's my prediction of how it's going to go. What about you?
1: Yeah, no, I know. We, we, I just want to check in with you. It's very similar to what we said a few weeks ago, um, but now having seen more evidence, I wanted to see if your position changed. I, I think you're right. I think that there's enough evidence, um, and, and on the lower scale not criminal, a preponderance of the evidence, for Letitia James and the people of the state of New York to prevail on everything remaining. You, why not? Why not throw him a bone and and suss out maybe the, the remaining counts are insurance fraud, um, books and records fraud, which are all crimes, by the way, uh, financial statement fraud, and conspiracies around those things, those three things. And so sure, throw him a bone. I think it'd have to be because the conspiracy and the underlying count issue, I think he'd have to throw two bones. So maybe he says, I don't really see the insurance fraud. If if there were one, if I were to pick one from the Karen Friedman Ignifilo world, which I agree with, I think he he may toss the insurance one. Because again, that's the one there's not a lot of damage there. not a dollar amount that could be disgorged from insurance, but it does give him, like you said, that prophylactic insulation. From being said, well, how biased was I? I I dropped one of your counts, you know, and all of that. And so uh, uh, we're going to keep watching, I think, without any of the Trumps testifying, even if Donald comes back. I think the case is about baked. There may be a short rebuttal case the way it works, as Karen alluded to it. Petitioner, plaintiff, state went first then, and they went for a long time, 25 witnesses, thousands of pages of documents and exhibits, hundreds of thousands of pages. And we've been in the defense case for the last several weeks. And then at the end, the attorney general gets the last word and they decide to put on what's called a rebuttal case. They can I've done them. It depends. I'm of two minds. You never want to give up the opportunity of the final word. But if you think we've been here. Because the rebuttal would have to literally be a rebuttal to what you just heard in the defense. The experts were terrible for Donald Trump. The bankers weren't any better. Um, you know, even when they put McConaughey on to cry his way through his testimony, or uh, Patrick Barney, I'm surprised he's still employed, uh, the, who said that he was told by you know, Weisselberg for Donald Trump to change the numbers. Uh, what, you know, what, what are you going to rebut? Um, but they could. They may take a day to do a quick rebuttal. If they have they someone do from a- Deutsche
0: Bank, they have someone from Deutsche could. Bank on the other side of the The fence that could be pretty crushing. You could bring
1: in rebuttal, you could bring you, you're right, you could bring in rebuttal witnesses, unless you feel like you're gilding the lily. You and I have done this. If you think you're way up on points, though it's never enough,
0: I but again, I'm used to having to prove
1: way up on points, though it's never enough you never know especially i don't know i old. would still
0: do it just to just to show that yeah. it's not true i i just for me i but again i'm used to having to prove my case beyond a reasonable doubt right. and right. so you to run yeah, up the points
1: yeah yeah you you definitely have to run up the points with on that theory but you also have a slightly frustrated and on you know eight weeks ago before they started the trial it's hard to believe beginning of october Goron turned to the New York Attorney General's lawyers the day after he granted summary judgment in their favor and said, do we really even need a trial? <laughs> like, I'm ready to go to remedy. And they said, no, Judge, we think we have to try all six of the counts and we're and because the remedies that we're asking for are drastic. And we got to make a record. Okay. And I, I think
0: agree with that. He'd
1: like the lawyers to shut their pie holes and let him start writing his order. I think he's already written a lot of his order and do the oral argument and then hit print. As I joked in a hot take, I've, I'm have sure you have too, or maybe not yet. I've finished oral arguments and then have the judge go, "Okay, here's my decision." Like, wow, <laughs> didn't change a word from when we started arguing. Um, oh, then yeah. rip, it off, rip it off and hand it to you. So uh, he may not do that, although he's quick. You know, they, they got on him about the summary judgment uh, being ordered. They went to a court, appellate court, to force him. To to both rule on the summary judgments and delay the trial to give him more time, and six hours later he issued his thirty-page order on summary judgments and said, "See you Monday for trial." And so he's this is already written. I would say right now three quarters of this order, one way or the other, is written already by the judge, and it's all well. You know, the proof of the pudding is in the tasting. We'll see what happens the last week or well, so. Well, it makes, it makes
0: sense because a lot of it's going to be you know. The facts, the allegations. This is the prosecutor, the plaintiff's case. This is the defense. I mean, a lot of it summarizes it. So as you go, it makes sense that he would, you know, populate it with things that happen as it's going in his in his in his. Corner. And you know who's
1: populating it? The principal law clerk and her exactly. staff. Of course, she is. She has a job. I know people think you know, they they they've made her into such a cartoonish figure. As they attack her and body shame her and misogynist and anti-Semitic and sexist and all of that, got a job to do. And every day she goes through the record at the end of the day and she points and marks the places in the transcript that's going to end up in the order. So it's just, just mind-boggling to me. It's also mind-boggling that they they can't find the lawyers for Donald Trump who are not who are not New York lawyers by training sorry they're just not they can't find their they can't find their butt with two hands they just they they are just they run down to to the first i've run down to the first department they run down to the first department and they get with chris kice all frustrated with the clerk we're here we're here to file an emergency we want a a one judge yeah they want the one judge again one judge justice to to let us expedite it go to the court of appeals of new york on the gag order and the lawyer the. Another courtroom staff, because the principal law clerk's a lawyer too. The lawyer for the first department comes out and says, Yeah, but that's not procedurally correct. Well, what do you mean? There's gotta be a way. He says, Yeah, it has to go to the full four justice panel that just ruled against you. And they have to decide. You can't get an emergency judge right now to just pull him out and sign the order. Oh, what do you mean? He got all the reporting was he got, people went down there and reported on this. Chris got all upset. Chris is always upset in this case. He's upset with the judge. He's, it's a travesty. It's a travesty of justice. We can't bash the law clerk. I assure you, never in his 30-year career in Florida as a lawyer has he ever had the temerity or the balls to bash a Florida state judge, Florida Supreme Court justice. He argued in front of the Florida Supreme Court as a solicitor general in Florida or any of their staff. I assure you, he has never, until he got into bed with Donald Trump, ever that and yet he comes to my and your city at our bar and tries to crap all over the process because his client has his hands up his backside
0: who's his local counsel who pro hoc beached him in because you know local the counsel Island because that's, that's I mean I try cases I handle cases all over the country and all over the state I did a I did a trial in the far reaches of upper New York state. I I'm barred in New York. I can practice there. I hired local counsel because there is nothing like local counsel. They know every courtroom's different, every judge is different. Every the every DA's office or is different. You know, just the way they do things. And there's nothing this would not have happened. They would not have screwed up this appeal had they had someone who knew what they were doing and that who knew how to practice in New York. It just it just doesn't make any sense to me. They're they're like a they're like a um keystone cops of lawyers and lawyering, you know, just in a in a serious case like this, that they wouldn't have someone who practices right here in the first department. It's just, it's almost malpractice to me.
1: Yeah, it it's interesting. She says she's a member of the New York State Bar, Alina Haba. Right? The, the people on the street don't agree, but I, I'm not sure about that, and if she's, she doesn't practice regularly in New York. Look, it's hard to practice in New York. It's hard, to, it's hard to pass the exam, and it's hard to practice. We have a thing called the CPLR, which is all about our civil procedure. It's unlike any other state. Most states follow and model themselves after the federal rules of civil procedure. And it's sort of, when you look at the local, if you look at the Florida rules, for instance, of civil procedure that Chris Keis is used to, and you look at them next to the federal, you know, you can see they're pretty close. York? York's got this Byzantine thing from the 1930s that we've been, you know, you and I still pull out the book. Oh, where is that in the CPLR, let alone the appellate rules? So anyway, we'll we'll continue to follow, like you said, the Keystone Cops and, and what what uh, transpires in New York will turn next in our podcast to Jack Smith, getting ready for trial in March, has some filings to do and some evidence he needs to identify in advance, Uh, special 404B evidence, which has a special quality. And Karen and I will break that all down, along with some developments in the Rudy Giuliani trial, go to jury trial, just on damages, how big of a check that he's going to have to write to Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss in the middle of December. Christmas comes early to Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman. And then finally, Nevada, Nevada, Nevada. It's all about elect fake electors who also were heads of the GOP in Nevada now being indicted in, based on their activities in the 2020 election. All that and so much more. But first, one of my favorite breaks of the show are sponsors. Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating clean. Let Green Chef take the work out of eating clean this holiday season. Every easy way. Slash. Parents can actually see just your pictures. Get your. We're going down to visit my mom this weekend and we're given. Uh, she's in Atlanta in a unfortunately in a um, assisted living facility and we're bringing her an Aura frame that we preloaded all of our most recent photos and now once we set it up in her room we'll be able just to shoot off the app you know it's really seamless photos in real time that'll just revolve on her frame and uh, just That's what we way do that...
0: exactly yeah. I'm 3000 miles away from my parents and yeah. what I do is I have access to their account and I just populate it with new photos yeah. whenever I feel like it and I have my own Aura frame I love the Aura
1: And then I do that while I'm eating sizzling chicken stir fry (laughs) from Green Chef. All right, let's talk about, um, speaking of sizzling, let's talk about Jack Smith. Um, Donald Trump's lawyers might not realize they're going to trial in March and are doing everything they can in the District of Columbia case to avoid it. Uh, They're waiting on it. We're waiting on a gag order to be reinstated, I would presume, by D.C. But in the meantime, there's a case to be tried. And as part of that case, there's a rule of evidence that Karen, trial lawyers like Karen and me like to to refer to as 404B, literally is a rule of the evidence code, which talks about a certain special quality of evidence that's being used not to show that somebody, because they did something bad in the past, they have a propensity to do something bad in the future, but it can be used to go to the heart of this case against Donald Trump, which is common plan, intent, Criminal intent, lack of mistake, inadvertence, and all of that. So I know Karen, you did a nice breakdown of it uh, with Danya Perry uh, recently, uh, it's up on it's up on our uh, one of our hot takes that's running right now. So why don't you uh, why don't you lead off on this one, and then I'll fill in the, the couple that I found really interesting that I did some hot takes on.
0: Yeah, sure. So uh, in the state, we called this Molino M-O-L-I-N-E-A-U-X, the French spelling, but it's uh, Rule 404B, federally, as you said. It's basically the same thing, and it's essentially, you're not allowed to put in evidence of propensity of criminal activity, and it seems almost counterintuitive, right? Because if, if you're a serial burglar, and you go and you commit burglary after burglary after burglary, and then you're caught doing a burglary, it Seems like it would be probative, you know, to show that um, that this is somebody who, that's what they do, right? And unfortunately, that is not allowed in because the prejudicial effect, and that's the balancing test that the court will use, is they weigh the probative value against the prejudicial effect. They'd say, look, just because he commits lots of burglaries doesn't mean he did this one, and you still have to prove your case beyond a reasonable doubt. But there is an exception to this kind of propensity, um, propensity argument, and it's to go to prove up a, a, a particular character trait or a particular um, a particular point like as you said motive, opportunity, intent, preparation plan, knowledge, identity, absence of mistake or lack of accident. And if you're going to introduce, any of this 404 b evidence. And 404 b evidence is literally anything that's an uncharged bad act or uncharged crime. And in this particular indictment, the conspiracy is very short, right? The, the Jack Smith DC case, it's from November of 2020 to January of 2021, so about two months. And in two of the charges, it's even shorter, actually. It's about a month, a month and a half. Um, it's a very short, narrow conspiracy from from November of 2020 to January of 2020-21. One defendant, four charges, and Jack Smith did it very, um, very kind of tight for a reason, and it makes sense. So if he wants to bring up anything that is beyond that time period, either before November or after January. He, one could argue that that's an uncharged bad actor, or an uncharged crime. And what Jack Smith did was said, look, even though much of what we're about to ask you to allow us to admit falls at different times, it's in- intrinsically part of the crime. It's intrinsically part of the evidence. It's not extrinsic. And he said, but if you find that it is extrinsic to the crime, in the abundance of caution, we are going to serve notice of 404B evidence that we intend to offer in our direct case as part of our case that we're putting on. And that way we we, we uh, comply with the notice requirement. It has to be in writing. And not only do we have to, not only does the law require you as a prosecutor to spell out what it is, what 404B evidence, what are the bad acts that you want to bring into your case, but you have to give the reason. You have to say, I want to bring this in because in all of the past burglaries, he always uh, you know, he always left behind a a pink scarf. And in this particular case, there was a pink scarf. And so that was his signature, right? That shows a common scheme or plan. It shows his identity. It shows his modus operandi. You know, that would be allowed in, you know, to show that, no, this is the guy. He's the guy who always leaves behind the pink scarf because he's done it 10 other times. And that's when you can bring it in because it's for that purpose. It's not to show that he has a propensity to commit a crime. And so, and so that's that's how the judge looks at it. It's entirely in the judge's discretion to allow it in or not, and uh, and it's not appealable the way the way certain very limited things are appealable mid trial. It's appealable only after the fact. Meaning, if he's convicted, then he can appeal it in the normal course. He can't go up on appeal. Prior to trial or during trial, if he doesn't like Judge Chutkin's ruling, neither side can do that. And that's called an interlocutory appeal, which they cannot take the way they can, the way Trump is doing in the presidential immunity and other constitutional arguments that he's making. Those, you know, last week, uh, Judge Chutkin immediately after the DC circuit in a civil case ruled that there is no presidential immunity in civil cases for former presidents uh, who were acting outside the scope of their job. Within hours of that ruling, Judge Chetkin said, and there's no presidential immunity in criminal cases either. And her 48-page ruling on that is, is like a novel and worth reading for anybody who who wants to learn about presidential immunity and the history of our country and Alexander Hamilton. It's actually a great decision, and I, I loved reading it. Um, but in this particular, getting back to, back to Judge Chutkin and the 404B evidence, um, I would categorize Jack Smith's uh, evidence in three categories that he wants to bring in. And one is historical evidence of his consistent plan of claiming election fraud that was baseless. And, and that's sort of category number one. And, and there, Jack Smith talk goes as far back as November of 2012, where Donald Trump issued a tweet uh, saying that voting machines had switched votes from Mitt Romney to Barack Obama. Does that sound familiar? Um, and uh that was you know obviously a long time ago before 2020 and um and he was already talking about this voting machine switch without any basis and then in 2016 he complained again without any basis of widespread voter fraud and basically going on and on about that again baseless um but Jack Smith wants to bring that in as evidence to show a common scheme of plan or plan of falsely blaming people for fraud in election results. And it also shows his motive and his intention to, and his plan to obstruct the certification of the 2020 election. Um, He also in that same category um, talked about Brought out some of his own words, Trump's own words, where he refused, for example, prior to the 2020 election, he refused to commit to a peaceful transition if he lost, and that win, lose, or draw with rioting and everything else, he still wouldn't, he wouldn't, um, he wouldn't commit to a peaceful transfer of power, and and you know, that, I thought that was incredibly, that will be incredibly power powerful if it comes in. Um, the next category. Um, that I would say that he wanted to that Jack Smith wants to bring in uh, had to do with Jack, um, Trump's knowledge that he lost the election and his motive and his intention to try and steal the election and in that he brings up several examples the fake electors for example you know that's a, a huge that's a huge um Although that is definitely part of this, he's talking, Jack, and so he will be allowed to bring that in. I think that um, what Jack Smith wanted to talk about is things that he didn't mention in the indictment, right? He, he talked about um, stuff that happened, for example, text. It looks like he got new text messages because uh, he revealed, I think for the first time, I don't remember seeing this. It looks like yet a seventh now unindicted co-conspirator that seems to be cooperating because it's redacted in there this um, election employee in Detroit uh, that I had not heard of before didn't know about so he seems to have obtained a cooperator since the last uh, the last indictment and potentially got a new got this new evidence and so that's why it's not in the indictment and why I think he added it here in 404b evidence um, as well as, you know, all of the time he and Giuliani, for example, um, were talking about retaliating against and retribution against, you know, um, Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman. That that brings us to, to the next, um, basically the next category, which is where he attacks individuals, right? He attacks Pence, he attacks Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. And, and what Jack Smith wants to bring out is the stuff that's happened that continues to happen, right? And he wants to talk about, for example, you know, the Proud Boys in, in 2020 when he said, you know, stand back and stand by. That was his way of knowing, and then seeing what happened January 6. They, they want to bring out that he knows that the people, his followers, commit violence. And so when they put on Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss, who will testify and talk about the, the threats and harassment that they have suffered because Donald Trump singles them out. Jack Smith is gonna use all of these other examples to show he knows what he's doing, he knows what his followers are doing. And even after the select committee hearings, I thought this was really powerful, even after the select committee hearings um, that happened two years after uh, Jan six, where there were videotapes of Seamus and Ruby Freeman talking about the horrific vitriolic death threats and racist things that they encountered. Donald Trump, at that point, knew because he obviously knew because that was publicized and that was broadcast he knew about that, and even after hearing about that, he doubled down with his with his um with his you know comments about them and recommended a- attacks on them in posts in his truth social and he even zeroed in on one of them writing that she's an election fraudster, a liar, and one of the treacherous monsters who stole the country and that she would be in legal trouble. I mean, you know, it's just outrageous. And uh, Jack Smith said, look, this shows his plan to silence people and to silence those who come out against them. It's, it goes to his knowledge that the public attacks on people like Shay Moss, Ruby Friedman, Mike Pence, et cetera, could foreseeably lead to violence and to threats and harassment. And, you know, I, I thought it was a really, really, um, compelling motion that I think, um, that I think that he will win most of these, if not all of them. Donya Perry, who was on with me, thinks that the judge may, some some of the Sheamus, Ruby Freeman stuff, she thinks that the judge um, may limit because it is so prejudicial and so compelling and so powerful. Um, but but i think it all comes in what about you Popok? what did you think
1: yeah two that i like the most out of all the six or seven um i don't i don't think i disagree with Danya. i think there'll be some some limiting of some of these things the reason that we're talking about it just for our audience is that you have to give notice of your intention to use this type of powerful potentially prejudicial having to be balanced type evidence especially when you're putting on evidence not of the actual conduct that's been charged in the indictment, because that's not 404B. Let me just wait for this. Let me just wait for this to pass. Okay. Um, It's not, that's not 404B. Actual evidence of the crimes charged, the four conspiracy counts against Donald Trump, that's just stuff that he did that supports, that comes out of the indictment, and there are elements of the crime and conduct consistent with the crime. This, as you said earlier, is a, a trying to bring over the wall into the courtroom evidence of prior conduct, historical uh, historical conduct evidence, testimony, statements, videos, and the like, to try to aim at an element of the crime that has been charged, and that's what we're doing here, and that's why we're talking about it because you have to you can't sandbag the other side. You can't surprise them or the court and try to just. Some people might be thinking, like, well, why don't they just do it in March? You got to do all this stuff in advance. First of all, there's a pretrial order that's that schedules out, and filings like this are due. And believe me, if we can, if 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 Jack Smith didn't have to give Donald Trump's lawyers notice of this, he would not, and he would save it, uh, save it for trial as a surprise. But the 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 rules. Allow for the litigation of the issue and the resolution of the issue well before trial, so that the jury's minds are't blown some of this information the two that i I took away that i I found really interesting because it's again an example of the more evidence that we're learning. We are not even at the tip of the iceberg of what was listed in the indictment. Um, Donald Trump is shadow boxing because all he knows is what's been dumped on him, which is the of course the one terabyte of information, the two tractor trailers worth of information, but doesn't know which of those are going to be used against them particularly yet. And he's gotta he's gotta try to figure out what the case is against him. Of course prosecutors have informational advantage because they know exactly testimony and the clips and the evidence and exhibits that they're gonna use against Donald Trump. So you always have that kind of informational asymmetry between the two sides of government and the on the defense side. And here you, we, but we're learning, and when, there, when there's a mandatory filing in the court process, like we just had, that's when we start learning. You know, the, the kind of the uh, the uh, curtain gets pulled back. You know, the, the hood gets opened, and we get to see under the hood as to some more evidence and uh, that uh, and how the prosecutors see the case. You know, it's like going shopping in a supermarket. No two. Baskets are the same. When you're waiting in line at a supermarket and you look over at your neighbor's basket, I assure you, it is not identical to yours. Uh, And so you can put this building blocks of this case together in different ways. What turns one prosecutor on might turn off another. I mean, there's some fundamental things, maybe 80 percent. If Karen got her hands as a prosecutor, former prosecutor, on the file, so to speak, 80 or 90 percent of it might be exactly the same as Jackson. but there's always that difference right of, of prosecutorial discretion and things that they light on and they think from their past experience would be successful in front of a jury in a case like this one and so that's what they're trying to build right now and what we learned for instance was um, and i outed him already because it's obvious who it is there's an unindicted co-conspirator that's listed as one of the 404b potential pieces of evidence against donald trump who Uh, interfered in the Detroit uh, vote counting and suggested or argued that there should be a riot of Trump supporters and others clashing in front of the streets in front of the count when he learned that um, that Trump was gonna lose. As soon as they learned that Biden was winning election night, two things happened in Detroit. One is the actual counting office got flooded people that were supposed to be poll watchers, who were instead just doing all sorts of ridiculous challenges to try to gum up the works and throw sand in the works of the illegitimate vote counting that was going on. And in the streets outside of the vote counting center in Detroit, there were, I wouldn't call them a mob, we have a video clip we may be able to run tonight, but there was, you know, like a, a group of people, uh, and there were a group of people on the other side, and but Boris Epstein, and that's who I'm outing right here and on my hot take was a political consultant and a lawyer for Donald Trump, still to this day, involved with every decision-making that Donald Trump does in civil or criminal cases, went so far as to hire for Donald Trump the current lawyers that he has, Chris Geist and Todd Blanch. Um, that Boris Epstein, who's identified in the 404B as an employee of the campaign, a campaign employee, he's listed in the indictment as unindicted co-conspirator number six, a political consultant. There's only one political consultant slash campaign employee who is an unindicted co-conspirator, and that's Boris Epstein. Can't be the lawyers, even though he is a lawyer. He doesn't really operate as one. But it's not, it's not Ken Chesbro, Sidney Powell, John Eastman, Jeff Clark, or Rudy Giuliani. It's Boris Epstein. And so Boris Epstein, on behalf of President Trump at the time, and President Trump, Try to cause a riot in Detroit to stop the count. I said in one of my hot takes, people, might be, people who tune in late might think I'm reciting last season of Succession. Spoiler alert, I'm not. This is what they tried to do. And Jack Smith wants to present that to the jury, along with evidence that they, they purposefully flooded with a goon squad into the vote counting to try to stop a vote count. Justice Boris Epstein is, Epstein is alleged to have done in the indictment on Jan 6th for he, Rudy Giuliani and Donald Trump to try to stop vote count related to the electoral certification, tried to do a pressure campaign using the violence of Jan 6th, i.e. that riot, stop the vote count. Never heard that before. It begs the question: Why isn't Boris Epstein in chains and shackled? And why isn't he in an orange jumpsuit? And why hasn't he been indicted? That's for another day and another hot take. I have a theory about that. It has to do with keeping the March trial date at all costs. So that I thought was fascinating, and and I thought of it as a trial lawyer, the power of the power of that being presented to a jury at the right moment in time in a trial, it would just be breathtaking. It would just change the weather in the room for that particular for that particular day, day whatever of the trial, against Donald Trump. putting aside all the lawyers and all the vice presidents that are gonna come and testify against Donald Trump. That kind of, he tried to start a riot as soon as they realized that they were losing, which goes to the intent of Donald Trump, the criminal intent that he knew he had lost on election night. He was trying to do everything he could to avoid the peaceful transfer of power even then. Now it's one. The second one is as you mentioned, not only has Donald Trump been complaining about voter fraud since like 2012, arguing that there was vote flipping somehow, software, hardware, or Mitt Romney votes that went to Barack Obama, but on more than one occasion, he's refused to acknowledge that the, that he would agree to a peaceful transfer of power. And there's two clips in particular, and I did it on a hot take that's coming up soon, that they mentioned by name, in which during the debate with Hillary Clinton, he was asked by the debate moderator 2016, Chris Wallace, will you right here in front of the American people, will you commit to a peaceful transfer of power the way we've done in every year of our republic going forward? Eh, we'll see. Sir, I'm sorry. We'll see is not an answer. What do you mean we'll see? Well, the ballots. The ballots, got to count the ballots, don't know about the ballots too early, can't commit. And to which Hillary Clinton responded, that is a... Uh, I'm trying to think of her word off the top of my head. We have a clip of it. She says something along the lines that that is an abomination. That is, har- that's the word, that this, that is horrifying. What my opponent for the presidency just said about is not supporting the peaceful transfer of power. And then there's a clip from uh, September of 2020, two months before the election, with the of uh, the aftermath of the Black Lives Matter protests and other issues in our in some of our big cities that summer, fresh on everybody's mind, a reporter asked Donald Trump at a press conference where all he wanted to probably talk about was Amy Coney Barrett being picked the next day the Rose Garden for Supreme Court Justice. He got asked, with riots in red and blue states and blood in the streets, will you commit here right now, Mr. President, to a peaceful transfer of power? And instead of saying yes, kind of quell uh, people's emotions about it he threw gasoline on it and said the opposite he said the ballots gotta get those ballots thrown out and if you get the ballots thrown out there won't be a, a transition there'll be a continuation right he'll stay in office now, that's easy to unpack he didn't like and his side didn't like the mail-in and absentee ballots or being used in all states including in blue states because of COVID people probably not wanting to wait in line, shoulder to shoulder with their neighbor during a pandemic. at finding a way, using absentee and mail-in ballots, which are as secure as any other way of voting. Donald Trump only voted by absentee ballot for many of the years that he voted, if he, if he voted at all. That was the way to balance health risks of the pandemic, with the constitutional right, fundamental right to vote. But for Donald Trump, the ballots, too many mail-in ballots. Because he wants to suppress the vote, because he wants to disenfranchise, because if you suppress the vote and disenfranchise in September, you don't have to worry about a vote count on the other end that's against you in November. So there was a lot packed into that statement. And for Jack Smith, he wants to put that in front of the jury and show, see, this is the common purpose and plan. This is the intent. Cling to power. Never transition. Always claim the ballots are wrong. Always claim there's fraud in the election and try to stay in office goes to criminal mind and criminal intent to Donald Trump. And he'll play, if he, if he wins on that issue in front of Judge Chutkin, he'll play those clips for the jury as part of that overall presentation. So for me, they're, they're, you did the good category thing, and I kind of drilled down on, on two in particular. Uh, before we move on in the pot, anything else on the 404B? But just to leave it at this, the notice comes in, Trump has another opportunity to argue against it. Maybe I think there's a reply brief notice thing. And then Judge Johnson's, Chutkin's going to go thumb up, thumb down on these categories of information and evidence outside of the actual elements of what's been charged in the indictment.
0: Yeah, the only other thing is uh, that struck me was, you know, Donald Trump is arguing that he wants to strike the language of Jam 6 and the attack from the indictment. If you recall, he yeah. doesn't like that in there. and J- And Jack Smith kind of was like, well, not only are we not, Are we objecting to that? I want to show that you actually had a motive and intent for that exact same thing to happen on January 6th by introducing evidence of how you characterize the rioters and the insurrectionists, how you have openly and proudly supported them, all of these